Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. You're listening to RTE Radio 1. Tonight's play won Best Radio Drama Script at this year's Writers Guild of Ireland Zebby Awards. Trailblazer Maura Laverty was a household name in Ireland from the 1930s through to the 1960s. Her work was often controversial and risque, falling foul of the notorious 1929 Censorship Act. Undaunted, she hosted her own RTE radio show for over 30 years, created and wrote Ireland's first TV soap, Talk a Row, and her iconic cookery books were a fixture in nearly every home in the country. Tonight we spirit her from her rest in Glasnevin and welcome Maura Laverty back to RTE Radio. Starring Barbara Nihuiv, Joan Sheehy and Jonathan Ryan, this is Hashtag Maura Laverty, This Was Your Life by Yvonne Quinn and Barbara Nihuiv. And listeners are advised the play contains adult themes. Ladies and gentlemen, This Was Your Life. And here is your host, Mr This Was Your Life himself, Rip Riley, R.I.P. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Welcome to This Was Your Life, the show that brings forgotten celebrities back into the public eye. Tonight's mystery guest has been dead for over 50 years, but in her day, she was a bit of a trailblazer. She was a well-known broadcaster and agony aunt, a writer of novels, short stories and plays, and Ireland's first ever TV soap opera. And as if that wasn't enough, she was Ireland's first celebrity chef. Quite a woman, quite a legacy. And yet, sadly today, she is almost completely forgotten. But tonight on my show, I'm going to change all that. I'm putting her back in the spotlight. Yes, I think she's just arriving. The production team are telling me they've managed to spirit her all the way from Glasnevin. And, and here she is. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the long gone, but not completely forgotten, Maura Loverty. Maura, you look absolutely ravishing. Doesn't she, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you, thank you. I can't believe I'm here. I love the outfit. Is that Dior? Sybil Connolly, actually. Just as well you wore the tux. <laughs> Especially for you, Maura. Especially for you. Have a seat. Rip Riley, at your service. How do you do? But what show is this? The girl in makeup said she was sworn to secrecy. Ah, patience, Maura, patience. You'll find out. But tell us first, what made you decide to accept our invitation to come back over ground? Well, I wasn't sure to begin with. I mean, what's the point? For one night only. But then I realised it was the perfect opportunity to get a look at my headstone. Ah, isn't that lovely? It wasn't a bit lovely. Have you seen the state of it? A dirty lump of concrete with nothing engraved on it except my name and dates. What were you expecting? Well, beloved, maybe, or deeply regretted by. And no mention of my achievements... Are my children. I'm so disappointed. I deserve better than that. And now they've dumped another coffin in on top of me. It had better not be my husband. Maura, Maura, please, enough about your grave. We have a little surprise for you tonight. Do you recognise this big red book? The reason you're on this show is... Tonight, Maura Laverty. This was your life. Between the covers of this book, we have every chapter of your public and private story. All the gory details. What gory details? Give me a look at that book. All in good time, Maura. All in good time. We're ready to begin. Well, I'm not. Why would I want to go raking over the past? Oh, come on, Maura. That's why the audience is here. They want to know everything about you. Don't you, ladies and gentlemen? We can't let them down. Why don't you tell them about your own life? <laughs> they know all there is to know already. They only have to check my Insta feed. <laughs> You're the one who needs the publicity. All I want is a decent headstone. I'm doing you a favour here. 
This time next year, there could be a street named after you, or a commemorative plaque. Now, wouldn't that be a proper memorial? Really? Why not? This show has huge ratings. If the public gives you enough likes... Enough what? Ladies and gentlemen, you know what you have to do. Get those phones and tablets out and give Mora a mention on the digital drug of your choice. Drug? What drug? Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Hashtag Mora Navity. This was your life. Relax there, Mora. And allow me to take you back to page one of your life. The 15th of May, 1907. Your mother was cooking in her kitchen in Rathangan, County Kildare, when she went into labour unexpectedly. Nurse Cassidy was sent for, and she arrived an hour later as you emerged bawling onto the kitchen floor. Another mouth to feed, she said, as she wrapped you in a tea towel. You were the third of nine children. As well as bringing up a family, your mother ran a successful drapery shop. A talented woman. It was a shame your father was so useless. He was a lovely man. He looked after the business side of things. Well, that's one way of putting it. As fast as your mother was making the money, your father was frittering it away on drink and horses. By the time you were nine years old, he had gambled away the family business. Now, that must have been devastating. To lose everything. Just like that. How did it affect you, Maura? Maura, you're among friends. It's none of your business. But the audience want to see things through your eyes. They want to know what it felt like. How do you think it felt? Oh, well, I, I obviously touched a nerve there. <laughs> so, moving on. Things were about to get even worse for you, Maura. Your father got cancer and died, and your mother was left with a houseful of children to bring up on her own. So she shipped you off to Dublin, sent you away to live with a childless couple who ran a boarding house in the inner city. How do you know that? You described it yourself in one of your unpublished novels. You talked about being lonely and shivering in bed, listening to the trams on Dorset Street and the roar of armoured cars heading for a raid. It was 1916. After a few months, you were allowed to go home for a weekend. Please, Mummy, please, don't make me go back to Dublin. It'll only be for a while longer. Just till I get back on my feet. But it's horrible, Mammy. They treat me like a slave. Hard work never killed anyone. I'm covered in flea bites. And I'm always hungry. All I get to eat is the heel of the bread with scrape of margarine. It's a good day you'd get it, so you may stop complaining. Why can't Peg go this time? Peg's delicate. Wish Daddy was here. He'd never send me away. Your sister Peg was always a thorn in your side, wasn't she? No, she wasn't. She was my favourite sister. Who are you kidding? You say here in your famous cookbook, Full and Plenty. I went into my mother's workroom to ask if me and Peg could go to Doran's Wood to gather blackberries for jam. She said we could if I didn't keep her out too late. She didn't want Peg catching cold, but first she wanted her to try on a dress. Didn't she, Maura? Pink is definitely your colour. My mother said. And she gave her a big hug. Jealousy rose in me like a vomit, and I had to turn away. Pink is my colour too, I wanted to scream. But I said nothing. I knew my mother loved Peg more than she loved me. So the two of you went off to the wood and... We picked loads of juicy blackberries. Mam'll be delighted with us. She'll make lovely jam. But then Peg went and ruined it by wanting to go home. Mam'll be worried about me getting a chill. The bile rose in me again. You go if you want, goody two-shoes. And you should have seen yourself in that pink dress. You looked a holy show in it, like a pale pink rasher. Times I felt so jealous. I used to wish her dead. Oh, I'm not surprised Peg was the favourite. <laughs> so your mother made homemade jam. Was she the one who taught you to cook? No, it was my granny. She was a wonderful cook. She taught me how to make all sorts of lovely things. Soda bread and griddle cakes and box tea. Ooh, I love box tea. 
And then one day, I found an old cookery book that had been thrown out by the Protestant minister's wife. I'd never seen recipes written in a book before. I used to read them at night like a bedtime story and wish I could write my own. I loved the names of all the ingredients. Angelica, cinnamon, nutmeg, vanilla. They were from such faraway, exotic places. The woman in the local shop used to look at me as if I was touched when I'd go in to ask her if she'd order them for me. "'Tis far from saffron you were rare,' she'd say. "'Go home and help your mother.' "'But sometimes your early attempts to help backfired a bit, didn't they? "'Making Christmas dinner, 1918?' "'What is that awful smell? "'What is that stinking grey thing beside the turkey? "'Maura Kelly, get in here this minute!' "'What's wrong, Mummy? "'What the hell is that?' "'It's a crow.' "'Jesus Mary and St Joseph!' The turkey looked too small to feed all of us. So you cooked a crow? Don't be cross, Mammy. I did everything right. I beheaded it and cut off its wings and feet and then I plucked it and washed off all the blood. Christ almighty, it's rancid. I'll have to throw everything out. You've destroyed Christmas for the whole family. Get out of my sight. I wish you'd never been born. I was only trying to help. So, Maura, what are you going to cook for us tonight? I'm not here to cook. Oh, yes, you are. We've had hundreds of tweets and texts from people who are dying to see you cook. Laura from Ennis says she has her mother's copy of Full and Plenty. The recipes are a bit old-fashioned. Don't be expecting avocado toast, lol. I'd rather talk about my novels. The audience won't have read them, Maura. Most of them were banned here as indecent and obscene. Exactly. Right now, we want to see you cook. Don't we, ladies and gentlemen? But I'm not dressed for cooking. Here's an apron for you, and your ingredients are under the tea towel. I always choose my own ingredients. Not this time. Chop, chop. Right. What have we here? An onion, potatoes and eggs. Lovely. Well, I suppose I could make a tortilla de patatas. That was always a big favourite with the ICA ladies round the country. Are you going to give me a hand? I'm guessing you learned to cook tortillas when you went to work in Spain. That's right. The nuns got me a job when I was 17 with a Spanish Marquesa who wanted a Catholic governess. One of the rules was I wasn't supposed to mix with the domestic staff. But at night, when the children were in bed, I'd sneak down to the kitchen. The cook showed me how to make paella and tortillas, and casseroles with saffron rice. There'd be steam everywhere, and the rich, dark smell of it getting into your hair and clothes. Uh, Our researcher found some letters the Marquesa had sent to the Reverend Mother of your old school. Yes. You got a few mentions. Really? What did she say? (coughs) Fiesta de la Asuncion, 15th of August, 1924. Dear Reverend Mother... Dear Reverend Mother, I am writing to you about Senorita Kelly. I am sad to say that she is very flighty and she tells me lies. She said she was going to Children of Mary meetings when in fact she was meeting a Spanish boy at the Ritz. She said they were enough, that he wanted to marry her. Stupid girl. He has been engaged for two years to a young girl from one of the best Madrileño families. I told her she looked like a puta to wipe that lipstick off her face and to get back to teaching my girls their English verbs. Wagon. Oh, poor Mora. Is it the onion that's making you cry? Or is it the Spaniard who blighted your life? <laughs> Alfonso Spagoni, the tardy adore. He shall die. Don't be so smart. He die. He I was heartbroken. Die. Would you get out of my way there and let me fry these onions? Yes, Chef. Let's see what else the Marquesa had to say. Time and again I forgave that girl. So imagine how scandalized I was to see Senorita Kelly on her day off playing beach ball with a young man and smoking. It was my first cigarette. Therefore, dear Reverend Mother, I am sorry to tell you that... 
Senorita Kelly and I have come to the end of the road. So she sacked you? Yes. I had just enough to pay for bed and breakfast in cheap lodgings. There were times when I thought I'd die of hunger. Did your mother send you money when you were having a hard time in Madrid? Oh, you must be joking. You obviously never met my mother. So, how did you survive? I taught English for a while, but that only paid a pittance. I was living hand to mouth. But then I taught myself typing and shorthand. And after knocking on a lot of doors, I got myself a job as a journalist on a Spanish newspaper. And was that when you started writing for Irish papers too? Yes, articles and short stories. There was this journalist in the Irish Times who wrote to say that he loved my writing. I have his letter here. What? How how did you get that? 21st of December, 1924. Are you the same Maura Kelly I met at the sports day in Robertstown? I'd be surprised if you're not, because she seemed like the sort of odd little girl who'd turn into a beguiling woman. (laughs) He signed himself... Your Bog of Allen correspondent. Different times, ladies and gentlemen. Different times. Anyway, you started writing to one another regularly. Hold your horses there now. You wrote and told me that you're engaged to a Hungarian engineer called Peter. Yes, I am. And he wants to marry you and take you to live in Budapest. But now you're telling me... You've met someone else? Yes, an Irishman I've been writing to since I went to Spain. A pen pal? He's a sports writer with the Irish Times. His name is Seamus Laverty. Laverty? Laverty. Never heard of him. Have you even met this Seamus fella? Of course I have. When? At a sports day in Robertstown, before I left. That was years ago. And last week. He met me off the ferry and took me to a cafe on Grafton Street... I bought him tea in Barnbrack to thank him for all he'd done for me. And? I told him about how much I miss Ireland and that I was having second thoughts about Peter and living in Budapest. And he said, why don't you marry me instead? I laughed and said I'd marry him if I got the ring in the brack. And I did. God almighty, are you completely out of your mind? Tell that young pup to leave you alone. Oh, he's not young. He's ten years older than me. Oh, ma'am, he looks just like Ernest Hemingway. Ernest too? He's so intelligent. And he dresses so well. He wears a silk hanky in his pocket. I can't believe any daughter of mine would pass up an engineer with good prospects for some old fella with a silky hanky. And what about poor Peter? I suppose I'll just have to break it off with them. Two weeks later, in Rathangan Church, Seamus Laverty and Maura Kelly became man and wife. Kira is on Twitter. God almighty, wasn't it easy in them olden days? You wandered into a calf for a bit of brack and you left with a husband. Hashtag, why are there no decent fellas on Tinder? Well, whatever about Tinder. Back in the day, Maura's depth and breadth of life experience made her an ideal candidate to become Ireland's first agony aunt and cookery advisor. The ESB approached her to host her own radio programme. Here's a blast from the past, folks. A programme that was broadcast on the 4th of January, 1930. ESB presents the Moral Laverty magazine. A listener called Betty writes to say, Dear Mrs. Laverty, I'm getting married in the month of June and I'm planning to make my own wedding dress. I may add that I'm on the plump side and I'm hoping you can advise me on which style might suit me best. Well, Betty, my mother used to always say, A loose-fitting garment is the fat girl's friend. But I think an empire-style dress with long, graceful lines is flattering to all brides, whether plump or thin. Betty also says in her letter, I intend to make my own wedding cake, a three-tiered fruit cake with royal icing, and I'd appreciate any tips you might have about how to keep it moist. 
Well, Betty, the answer is alcohol. The night before you bake your cake, soak the fruit in a cup of brandy. And after it's baked, pierce it with a knitting needle and feed it another good dollop of brandy. And I promise you, Betty, your cake will be delicious. Was Fat Betty seriously going to organise the whole shindig herself? Who else was going to do it for her? A wedding planner, of course. Mrs Riley had a whole team of them working on our big day. Now, what's next for this tortilla? I'm using four eggs today. I'll crack them into a bowl and beat them lightly. Then I'll take the onion and potatoes out of the pan and add them to the eggs in the bowl to let all those lovely flavours mingle. And I let the mixture rest there for a while before cooking it. That's what the Spanish do. Right. Sue from Kilkenny, who eats a boiled egg every morning, good woman Sue, has just emailed in, wondering why eggs nowadays don't taste as good as they did years ago. Well, Sue, it all depends on how fresh they are. I still remember the wonderful eggs we got when we were children. Fresh from the farmyard, still warm from the hen, with bits of straw and feathers stuck to them. A spinster called Hen Neelan sold the best eggs in Rathangan. And God love her, she looked a bit like a hen herself. Her bosoms hung down to her waist like a pair of folded wings. And she had this habit of jerking her head upwards and, and peering from side to side like a nervy hen when she was feeding her chicks. So this hen Neelan had no children? No, apart from her chickens. But Maura here gave birth to her first child, a little girl called Maeve, on the 19th of April, 1931. Oh, my God, she was so beautiful. The image of her mother. No, she was far better looking than me. So tiny and fragile, with huge eyes. She won a bonnie baby contest when she was a toddler. Yeah? And the Dawn Beauty contest when she was 18. Well, Maeve was interviewed by the Leinster leader shortly after winning that. She said her earliest memories were of cooking with you. Making sponge cakes and butterfly buns and... Rolling out dough for pastry on a red formica table you had for years. The flour would get everywhere, up her nose and into her hair. We'd plan her future as we sieved and kneaded. She told the leader that she wanted to be a chef and that she was going to go to Paris to learn French cuisine. I was hoping she'd be the next Julia Child. I just had such high hopes for her. Poor Maeve. Hmm. Four years after Maeve was born, you had a second child called Barry. Sadly, Barry was a bit of a disappointment, though. What are you talking about? Well, Barry was a girl. But you and Seamus wanted a son so badly that you gave her a boy's name. No, one of the nurses got it wrong and told Seamus I'd had a boy. But Seamus had already announced to the world that we were calling the baby Finbar. So we were stuck with it. Imagine the roll call. Finbar Margaret Lavatory. <laughs> Barry says she remembers you reading bits of your first novel, Never No More, to her when she was about seven. Yeah, herself and Maeve used to love hearing stories from when I was young. I set it in a fictional village. Which was quite obviously Rathangan. Uh, that made it uh, quite controversial, didn't it? Well, some of the people I wrote about weren't too happy with their pen pictures. Barry said they burned copies of your book on the street. Yes. And when I went back there to visit my mother, a gang of go-boys pelted me with stones. What in the name of God did you expect? I've never been so embarrassed in all my life. How will I ever hold my head up in this town again? I only wrote about things that everybody already knew. You might at least have changed people's names. I didn't always use people's names. What about Biddy Blocks or Guts Gallagher or News of the World Bork? They were nicknames. And as for writing about that girl being made pregnant by a man in his 70s... She was 13. He bribed her with a bicycle. Sean O'Fuelon loved my book, and so did Brendan Behan. He wrote me from his prison cell in Arbor Hill. He said himself and his pals were fighting each other over whose turn it was to read it next. In prison? He said it held a mirror up to society. A mirror? And tell me this... What does your husband make of all your new pen pals? How do you like your eggs in the morning? 
So what did your husband think of the trouble your book caused? He was a writer himself. He understood. Our researcher got the impression that he spent most of his time betting on the horses he was supposed to be reporting on and drowning his sorrows in the local hostelries. That is unfair. He worked hard. As well as the newspaper, he worked for the Irish sweepstakes. But he made a right hames of that. Nearly left you destitute. He had big dreams, but nothing ever seemed to work out for him. Sounds just like your father. He wasn't a bit like him. But you admit you were constantly struggling to make ends meet. Yes, but... So, what would you say was your greatest fear? Uh, not being able to pay the bills. That we'd have nowhere to live because we couldn't pay the rent. We were forever moving from one set of shabby rooms to another. But wherever you went, your typewriter went with you. Your daughter Barry talked about that in a radio interview after you died. She said, The soundtrack of our childhood was my mother banging away on the keys of her old typewriter. She never stopped typing, constantly churning out anything she could sell to anyone. But no matter how much she earned, she was always hopeless with money. If it was a good night for her writing, that carriage return would ding away like a busy bell. But if it was a bad night, we'd hear the screech of the paper being ripped from the machine and scrunched up and her shouting as she threw it against the wall. Sometimes the words just came racing one another onto the page. But there was so much I never got down on paper. Often, I'd go to bed with all the things I wanted to say still locked up inside me, and I couldn't sleep. It was like there was something hungry in there that I needed to keep feeding. Only an artist would understand. I had no choice but to work. And work you certainly did. Four novels, five cookery books, Umpteen short stories and children's stories. Radio work for RTE and the BBC. Sounds exhausting. I wanted my children to have a decent place to live and a good education. Well, you certainly succeeded with that. You managed to send your daughters to a famous Dublin boarding school and to rent a beautiful flat on the Leinster Road in Rathmines. It became a famous salon for Bohemian Dublin. We had so many great parties there with wonderful guests like Sean O'Fuelon, Patrick Kavanagh, Kate O'Brien, Christopher Fitzsimons... Whoa! Too much name-dropping, Maura, says Ellie on Facebook. And who the hell are these people anyway? I've never heard of any of them. Everyone knows who they are. They were the Kardashians of their day, Ellie. Who? Reality stars, influencers... Other people want to know what they're wearing so they can copy them. Oh, I could never resist a bit of style, especially when I could least afford it. I used to tell my listeners that if they needed a lift, a new hat was as good a tonic as anything a doctor could give you. The EFB presents the Moral Avity magazine. A listener from County Wicklow writes to say, I'm 35 years old and I've been married for 10 years. Unfortunately, my husband and I have very few interests in common. I appreciate literature and art, but he's happier having a few drinks with his friends. Last week, I was feeling low, and I went to a film in the afternoon on my own. During the intermission, I was buying ice cream, and I fell into conversation with a gentleman. He's an artist, and we talked so much about Jack B. Yeats that we nearly missed the second half of the show. He wants to meet me next week to lend me his copy of Anna Karenina. I'm desperate to see him again. What should I do? Dear County Wicklow listener, you know exactly what you should do. You're a married woman. You should not consider trifling with this man's affections or allow him to trifle with yours. If you want to read Anna Karenina, I suggest you order it from your local library. Rather than meeting this artist next week, I think you should spend the time thinking about what might make your husband's life better. If we make the people around us happier, we often feel happier ourselves. And in this recent cold snap, what could make him happier than a hearty bowl of soup? A man may be attracted by the aroma of French perfume, but the smell of good, honest broth will anchor him forever. A lot of reaction to that letter, Maura. Very disappointing. 
texts Shirley from Rathnew. It's put up and shut up the best Maura can come up with. Facebook's not impressed. Louise says, So you want this woman to stay in a loveless marriage with her boring as batshit husband? And Nadine says, Mrs. County Wicklow should definitely meet the artist, but just make sure Hobby never finds out. Do these people never worry about consequences? Oh, come on now, Maura. A woman like yourself, with a sense of adventure, moving in those glamorous bohemian circles. Surely there must have been the odd occasion of sin. I don't want to talk about that. Why not? It's all water under the bridge now. Be honest. Did you ever fall madly, passionately in love with someone you shouldn't have? Well, I... I'm not talking about our Bogavallan correspondent. I'm, I'm talking about a wild, titanic passion that sweeps away everything in front of it. Yes, I do know what that feels like. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. I was completely obsessed with someone once. Who? The Spanish fellow? No. Well, then who? Oh, come on, Maura. What difference can it make now? I'm not going to tell you his name. But he was an extraordinary man. A doctor and a writer, full of a burning passion to change the world. For a while, I'd have given up everything to be with him. Walked away from my whole life without a backward glance. It was like a sickness. So what happened? Not as much as I'd hoped. Why not? He belonged to someone else. Well, to two others, actually. He had a wife and a mistress. Jesus. I'd say that put a stop to your gallop. Loads of reaction to that, Maura. Well, now isn't she the dark horse? Tweets Joan from Skibbereen. Maura's last lover sounds fantastic. Does she have any pics? Fanny from Kulak wants to know if you were married when you met Tell her to mind her own business. Fanny goes on to say, I've just been dumped by a married man who's been promising for years that he'd leave his wife. I'm heartbroken. What can I do, Maura? All you can do is try and keep busy. Distract your mind so there's no space for sadness. Did that work for you? Not really. I felt tired all the time. As if I'd nothing left to hope for. Then I got this terrible nausea. So I went to the doctor for tests. You're what? I'm expecting a baby. At this hour of your life? I thought the hens were well past laying. Sure you had babies too, till well into your forties. That certainly wasn't my idea. Well, I'm very happy about it. Are you? I don't know how you'll fit a baby in with the writing and the radio and all the gadding about... You're not at home very often, are you? That is not true. The day Jimmy was born was the happiest day of my life. He was long and skinny, with lots of dark hair. He lay on my heart exhausted, too tired to even breastfeed. I couldn't bear to be apart from him. Well, not until the Gate Theatre came knocking, with an offer you couldn't refuse. And the whole new world opened up for you. Tell us about that. Hilton rang me up one day to say how much he loved my book, Lift Up Your Gates. According to his biographer, he said, Maura Laverty painted a searingly honest portrait of everyday life in the Dublin slums. Oh, I knew exactly what it was like to live in those tenements. Hilton was recommending the book to everyone. Yes, but it was banned in Ireland. But then he said he had what he described as an absolute belter of an idea. He thought the gate could get around things if you wrote a version of it for the stage. I was sure the censors would put a stop to it. But Hilton convinced you. He said, Those holy Joes never set foot inside a theatre, too busy saying rosaries and mortifying in the flesh. <laughs> and he was right. He did advise me to give it another name, though, to throw them off the scent. So you called it Liffey Lane, and it opened in the gate in May 1951. It was like a dream. After so many years scrabbling and, and struggling to be heard, I was finally being taken seriously as a writer. I'll never forget the excitement of that first opening night. The cream of Dublin society out in force. Hilton and Michael as nervous as kittens. Gin and tonics all around. The smell of the bar and the women's perfume. 
They're all lapping this up online, Maura. Line? What line? What are they saying? Dana from Tyrone said, This is so much more glamorous than cooking demos for the ICA. <laughs> Hashtag celebrity parties. Hashtag red carpet smiles. But to be fair, Dana, by this stage, Maura's cookery career had gone up market too. Her books were selling like hotcakes at home and abroad. And in 1953, she was flown over to New York to create a special Patrick's Day menu for Kavanagh's famous Irish restaurant. She'd been asked to recreate a traditional menu, as it might have been served to St. Patrick on the Hill of Tara in the High King's Banqueting Hall back in the 5th century. How the hell would anyone know what St. Patrick ate for his dinner? You're missing the point entirely. The reason it's so exciting is that I'm finally being recognised in America. And not just for my cooking. My novels are selling there too. I finally done it, ma'am. I finally got there. Where, exactly? Oh, for God's sake, there's no point talking to you. I'm just a simple countrywoman. I've always put family ahead of worldly temptations. But that's one of the main reasons I'm doing this. It'll open so many doors for Maeve in America. And what are you doing with little Jimmy? I hope you're not expecting that bowsy of a husband of yours to look after him. He'll just leave him in a pub somewhere. I've employed a woman to mind him. It's only for a week. So, there you were, Maura, at the height of your powers. The envy, not just of Peg, but of every woman in Ireland. But things weren't quite as rosy as they seemed on the surface. This is a letter you wrote to your sister Peg, in which you tell her all about a visit you'd made to a priest. Don't read that out. Tell us about it yourself, so. No, it's private. Oh, come on, Maura, or else I'll have to read it. All right. All right. It was a cold November day. One of those days when there doesn't seem to be any light. I was in town when I passed a church. So I went in and somehow found myself in a queue for confession. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My husband's gone, Father. After 30 years of marriage, he's left me to live with someone else in Belfast. The woman I trusted to look after my son. The priest said nothing for a long time, but then he started blathering about hell and people living in sin. And no matter how I tried to explain it, he just couldn't seem to grasp the big worry. Which was? That somebody would find out. My job was to give people advice about their problems. They had to believe that my life was perfect. If they knew the truth, they'd think I was a fool or a hypocrite or both. So what did he suggest? That I examine my conscience. He asked me why had my husband left in the first place. What sort of a wife had I been? He told me to write him a letter, apologise for all my shortcomings and beg him to come back. I told him I didn't want him back. Broken things can't be unbroken. I walked out of the church that day and I never went back. I'd better fry this tortilla. So, what did Jimmy make of all these new arrangements? I didn't tell him for a while. Well, surely he noticed that one of his parents was missing. He knew his father had got a job with the Belfast Telegraph and he saw him from time to time. And what about the girls? They had their own lives. Maeve was married in America and Barry and her husband were living abroad. So, with everyone gone... I suppose you were able to dedicate yourself 100% to your writing. I imagine Hilton wanted more plays for the gate. Oh, he did. He invited me to discuss it over lunch in the Shelburne Hotel. Ordered an expensive claret to go with the lamb. He said my three little plays had dug the gate out of a very serious financial hole. Mm, he told his biographer... Maura Lavater saved our bacon. Yeah, but he still wouldn't pay me any of the royalties he owed me. At lunch that day, I told him I couldn't wait any longer. I was trying to buy a house and I really needed the money. And did he cough up? Of course not. Just some old nonsense about how badly he wanted to pay me, but he said what he desperately needed from me was another play like Talcaro. That would mean everyone, including myself, could be paid what they were owed. Now, wait a minute. 
Wasn't that a bit like asking you to pay yourself? Exactly. Anyway, I was delighted to be able to tell him that I didn't have the time because RTE had just asked me to turn Tolka Row into a weekly drama series, Ireland's first ever TV soap opera. He nearly choked on his claret. It's a terrible pity you didn't live long enough to see Tolka Row, ma'am. How would I have seen it? I never owned a television set. Everyone in the country is glued to it, even in Rathangan. Well, there's not much else to do in the wintertime. They're all talking about the Nolan family as if they're real people, not just characters I created in my head. But what about your own family? How's Maeve getting on in America? She has four beautiful children now, three boys and a girl. Is she still having trouble with her nerves? Well... She hasn't been home for a while. That's a good sign. I thought she'd never learn to stand on her own two feet. How's poor Jimmy? I still can't believe you sent that poor child off to boarding school when he was only seven. Would you stop it? I'm the only scriptwriter on Talca Row, and I have to do my radio shows as well. I couldn't possibly look after a teenage boy full-time on my own. Maybe you should spend more time on Jimmy and less time on those Nolans. But I'm doing it all for him. Ah, stop cutting yourself. Of course I am. After all those years of renting flats, Tolkaro means I finally have enough money to buy a house for me and Jimmy. You're not doing it for Jimmy. Who am I doing it for then? You're doing it for me, of course. Haven't you spent your whole life trying to impress me? So, thanks to Tolkaro, you moved into a beautiful four-bedroomed house in Rathfarnham in 1964. From a very inauspicious start, you, Maura Laverty, had become a household name, a major figure in Irish life, and now finally, at 57, a woman of property. Yes, things had worked out much better than I'd expected. But behind the scenes, everything wasn't quite so perfect, was it? You were all on your own, rattling around a big house, more scripts than ever to write, more deadlines to meet. I used to write at night when the world was asleep, when no one could bother me. But you were a martyr to insomnia. The only thing that helped me sleep was having a glass of hot milk with brandy. Hmm. But that became a slippery slope for you, didn't it? What are you talking about? This letter from your radio programme in 1965. Maybe you'd read it for us? I don't want to. Come on, Maura. Your job was to use your experience to help others. Just read it. It may help someone in the audience. Dear Mrs Laverty, I don't know what to do or where to turn. I used to be an occasional drinker. Now I'm drinking night and day, and the house has gone to rack and ruin. I hide whenever anyone comes to the door. What can I do? Dear listener, alcoholism is an affliction. A disease, just like cancer or TB, and it can often mask depression. No one chooses to become an alcoholic. I'm sure you hate living like this. I'm sure you wake up every day and vow to do better. You promise yourself that today is the day that you'll stop drinking. But as the day drifts towards evening, the feelings inside you build up until they become too hard to bear and you have to kill them somehow. You try, you try very hard, but the pull is too strong. The emptiness is too... Maura, I'm I'm going to have to stop you there. What? It's just, it's gone a bit too dark too soon. We usually save that for the end. Uh, The end of what? The end of your story, the, the death bit. No, No, I I want to make a cake. What? No, you haven't even finished the omelette. I don't care. I want to make a sponge cake. Baking always cheers me up. No, no. This is my show. It has a set format. The audience is looking forward to the death bit and the legacy. My recipes are part of my legacy. Where's my stole? Where's my stole? Why in God's name do you need a stole? Oscar Wilde said you can never be overdressed or overeducated. Yes, I bet he never spent much time in the kitchen. Now, I need three eggs. Crack one. Maura. 
Crack two. Mara. Crack three. Mara! <laughs> Can you stop, please? We've already had a belly full of cooking. If I knew you were coming, I'd oh, bake the cake, bake the cake, Mara. bake the cake. If I knew you were... My producer we is telling me we're running out of time sugar. here. I never measure stop anything. Stop that bloody whisking. <laughs> no, I need to finish this. If I knew you were coming, I'd bake the cake. Cake! No more cake! Give me that bowl. No, you, no. You can't no. disrupt the format of the show. I don't care about your format. We need to get to the end of your story. I don't want to. Mona, what's wrong with you? You're being a terrible guest. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. What is the point of us going to all the trouble to exhume you when all you do is come back and act the maggot? You're, You're going, going to, to ruin, ruin it for everyone. everyone. What sort of useless creature are you? Look at the pig's ear you've made of everything. I want you to stop bothering me. You keep coming to me at night. I can't sleep, ma'am. As soon as I'm about to nod off, you start whispering things in my ear. The only way I can shut you up is by taking pills. I want to be left alone. A little bit of gratitude wouldn't go astray. Gratitude for what? Everyone else has fecked off, but I'm still here. Enough. I've had enough of you. I'm not listening to you anymore. I am not listening to you anymore. Mora, are you okay there? Why don't you sit down? We have to think of the audience. The viewers are waiting. Deirdre from Nace says, I'm desperate for that cup of tea, but I want to know how Mora died, and I don't want to miss it. Can you get on with the death bit? Don't put the kettle on just yet, Deirdre. It's coming up right now. So, Mora, we're approaching your last months now. And things have started to unravel. You were having a lot of falls. First you broke your wrist, and then you broke your hip, ending up in hospital, where you fell behind with your work. I recorded my radio programmes from my hospital bed. Yes, but I found letters from RTE saying that you were late delivering scripts for Tolkarow. They had to send the actors home, because there was nothing for them to film. Let me tell you how I imagine your last few weeks... You're hobbling around at home, staying up all night, trying to write your scripts, but you keep missing your deadlines. And in the midst of all this, you decide to change your will. So? I just wanted to put my affairs in order. Fair enough, but shortly afterwards, the lady vanished. I did not vanish. But the next time we hear from you, you're dead. So? That wasn't my fault. Well, why don't you tell us what actually happened? What your last few hours were really like? No, this is supposed to be about my life, not my death. Well, let me help you. You're all alone in, in your big house. The walls are closing in. Nothing but memories and regrets for company. It wasn't a bit like that. It was a beautiful day. The window was open. I was in bed, just me and the typewriter... I'd nearly finished the final script. I suddenly felt full of joy. Once the hip is healed, I'll visit Maeve in America. Take Jimmy with me. Maybe Barry could come with us too. We'll have the time of our lives. Then my head floods with a terrible pounding pain. I try to reach for the cup beside the... But it's as if my arm doesn't belong to me anymore. I try, but I... I just can't. And then Mam appears, perched like a queen on the candlewick bedspread, just when I thought I'd finally got shot of her. Come on, she says, you're coming with me. I laugh in her face. Why would I go anywhere with you? I've spent my whole life trying to get away from you. And then she's gone. And it's dark. And everything dissolves. Like sugar in a teacup. The Irish Press, 28th of July, 1966. The body of Mrs. Maura Laverty was discovered early this morning in her home. The 59-year-old writer and broadcaster had been dead for several days before her body was found. It is thought that Mrs. Laverty may have died from a heart attack or a stroke. Several days? Twitter's gone mad. Tears in my eyes. Hashtag rest in peace, Mora. And a follow-up from Deirdre and Nace. I made that cup of tea and don't feel like drinking it now. Poor Mora. No one should die alone. Dead for several days before she was found.
texts Teresa from Cootill. She must have been in a shocking state. Oh, stop. Maura, I think you can see how your life and death has affected and touched our audience. But the team's telling me that they're ready to take you back to Glasnevin. Hold on a minute. What happened to my children? We don't really have time for this, Maura. I'm not leaving till you tell me. Tell me about Maeve. She died. Eight years after you. Oh, that, that, that can't be true. I'm afraid it is. Poor Maeve. What about Barry? Barry became a highly successful artist. Oh, I knew she could do it. And Jimmy, did he become a writer? No. What then? He became a heroin addict. The other coffin in your grave is Jimmy's. Oh, no. Oh, God. I, I need to go. I need to find him. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have time for tonight. We say goodbye to Maura Laverty, a major figure in 20th century Irish life. A woman who lived her life passionately and to the full. Someone who challenged the status quo and produced an enormous body of work in so many areas. A woman who I think deserves to be remembered for the pleasure she brought to so many people through her cooking, her plays and her books. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been a wonderful audience. Enjoy the week, the month, or what's left of your life. It wasn't you in the hot seat tonight, but one day it could be you on This Was Your Life. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake, baked a cake, baked a cake. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. Hot you do, hot you do, hot you do. Had you dropped me a letter, I'd have hired a band, grand band in the land. Had you dropped me a letter, I'd have hired a band and spread the welcome app for you. And that was hashtag Moral Laverty. This was your life by Yvonne Quinn and Barbara Nequeve. Maura Laverty was played by Barbara Nequeve and Maura's mother was Joan Sheehy. Jonathan Ryan played the compere Rip Riley. Sound design and sound supervision was by Kieran Cullen and Kieran Dunn. And special thanks for additional archive TV sound FX to Alvin Sweeney and Sean Higgins. Hashtag Moral Laverty This Was Your Life by Yvonne Quinn and Barbara Nequeve was directed by Goretti Slavin. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.